Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome in Outkick the Culture podcast. I'm Jason Martin, your host, Jmart Outkick on Twitter, jmartclone at gmail.com if you want to reach me. Last week, only touched on a few things because I had a lot to say about American Vandal, and based on the response to the podcast as well as to my print review at outkick.com, you guys agreed when you actually went and checked out American Vandal and a lot of you thanking me for suggesting it to you. I'm here for you. That's what this podcast is about, helping you not to waste your time in a sea filled with entertainment of varying quality. And we're going to talk about that varying quality today. I know it ended a couple of weeks back, but I want to discuss the center in its entirety. And we're going to do that to lead off here in just a second. We're also going to talk about the next couple of episodes of The Deuce 2 and 3 that have aired now that we can speak about. Appropriately, we're going to talk a little bit about Young Sheldon, which has already received a full season pickup from CBS in two days because of the ratings numbers that it pulled in on Monday night during its premiere, which were the highest of the kind for a new series premiere since Empire on Fox, which shows just what kind of rarefied air Young Sheldon is in and what a powerhouse the Big Bang Theory remains, even though the quality of that show has not been there since about season five and they're about to enter i think it's season 10 here this year actually maybe 11 but at this point who even cares it's been on forever so we will discuss that as well here today also battle of the sexes that came out or it comes out today i saw it last week my print review was yesterday if you missed that we'll talk about that also a lot on this is us um the first season And what could come this year and just how much they've got in the tank after giving so much of themselves in the 18 episodes that we have already seen. Plus a lot of returns this week. All the ABC comedies with the exception of Blackish Fresh Off the Boat, which come back next week. Uh, And Blackish now on Tuesdays, by the way, as they've moved American Housewife to Wednesday nights to go with the Goldbergs, Speechless, and Modern Family. So we'll talk some about those kinds of things as well as some of the other returns. Superstore returned last night. Good place now on Thursday nights uh, after the one-hour season premiere. Last night's episode, absolutely fantastic. I've already seen the next one as well, and it's even better. So I told you last week why you needed to watch that show. I've kind of done that a couple of times on this show. So definitely you're going to want to stick around as we continue to, to unpack that show over the next couple of months because it is absolutely fantastic. Ted Danson in these Smirnoff ads, by the way, is really throwing me for a loop because I keep seeing Michael advertising Smirnoff vodka. But, hey, Ted Danson's got to make a living, and he's awesome, so he can do what he wants. But it's weird. It's just weird because he looks exactly like Michael, but he's hawking alcohol. Let's talk about The Center. Center was eight episodes, miniseries, a one-off, Jessica Biel, Cora Tonetti. And Bill Pullman, Harry Ambrose really doing most of the heavy lifting in terms of not just being the star power, but also being the the two characters that really had lasting impact. But a cast that got a little bit deeper and was also very talented when you got further down the line, Jacob Pitts, J.D. Lambert, 
awfully good. Mason Tonetti was Christopher Abbott. He I wasn't sure how that was going to play, but it ended up playing out very well. Abby Miller's Caitlin Sullivan was very good. But the, the, the crux of the center is, in these eight episodes, did they do a good job of telling this story and giving us a conclusion that we liked? And the answer to that question is yes. And the reason why you knew going in that this was probably going to be at least pretty good is because the source material did have a conclusion. The book that this was based on had a conclusion. So you weren't necessarily... You didn't have to put your hopes or pin your hopes on some Hollywood writer to come up to an ending. The novel by Petra Hamasfar, which I'm sure that I just absolutely butchered that pronunciation, is a book that I have not read, quite frankly, and I kind of want to read it now just to see where the differences lie and what was Hollywoodized and what was not in terms of her story to what was actually put on screen. Jessica Biel did fantastic work. As Cora Tonetti, pretty much all the way throughout. Bill Pullman has had an excellent year. He's in Battle of the Sexes. He's very good in Battle of the Sexes, but he's certainly better as Harry Ambrose in the center than he's been in anything in quite some time. A, you know, sort of a lonely, dark character that has a good heart, but also has his own problems, which Catherine Irby, his wife, and how that sort of falls apart and is predilections towards uh S&M and things like that like there's there's definitely some things there that I'm sure are probably explored a lot deeper and probably a lot more graphically in the book but within these eight episodes from the start the idea that the crime was committed in broad daylight in front of people and the rest of the series is not necessarily about proving innocence but proving why this happened and whether or not there was some justification behind it. So they lay out this story with all of these flashbacks, which are sometimes horrifying and sometimes intriguing. Well, always intriguing, but sometimes very disturbing, uh, even to the extent of Cora and Phoebe in bed together. Nadia Alexander, by the way, did a great job as the younger daughter in the film. But we saw quite a bit of... Tough content, MA content to be sure for USA. It's continuing down that path. Mr. Robot's back in a couple of weeks. That's certainly a mature show. Damnation is going to be an extremely mature show, as is Unsolved, the uh, Tupac and Biggie miniseries. It's going to run next year on USA. But we have certainly gotten away from what the network has been known for through the years. But the center is an indication of a network that wants to be taken seriously, as was Mr. Robot. When you got to the conclusion of episode eight now when you get to episode seven and we see basically from start to finish what happened that night at the club and you find out how phoebe died and how really frankie belmont was not malicious it's just she was weak she was in a very bad state from a health perspective we all knew that and when he tried to give her cpr he cracked her and just basically broke her in half and she died and how sad that was but it wasn't like the gang rape that it looked like it might have been at first. And even to the to the part where we see the guy in the mask in the scrubs and you're thinking, well, what on earth is this guy doing to her? Well, he was making her a heroin addict or making her appear to be a heroin addict. But in general, we find out when we find out that it's Frankie's father, that really he was trying to protect his son and he just wanted her to forget everything that happened before he dumped her. Now, what what he did was reprehensible, but it wasn't this you know, sexual ritual stuff that it appeared like it might be at first. 
JD was a drug addict or an, and a drug pusher, certainly drug dealer played by Jacob Pitts, who was awfully good back in the day on justified on the other side of the law, certainly from the kind of scumbag JD Lambert character that he played here, but it wasn't quite as sinister as it appeared at first. Now, JD was a jerk and you know, the, the partner in sex crime and drug crime and all that kind of stuff that we met in the club in episode seven and, there were many things within the series that were certainly crazy. But in the end, it was actually more grounded than we anticipated based on the way it was laying itself out. I think that's in direct contrast to what happened with The Night Of, where it started in a grounded way and then went completely off the deep end with what happened to Nas in prison during the time that he was there, which it was hard for us to decipher how long that was it didn't feel like it was more than a couple of weeks and the guy had descended into being a completely different human being. In the center, it looked like it was going to be extremely dark and extremely just disturbing. And with a few exceptions, it actually ended up making a lot of sense. JD's father, or pardon me, Frankie's father, making the mistake that he made, even admitting to it at the end and crying and saying he was so sorry and all of those kinds of things after Cora's conviction and her finally going to the house and discovering the wallpaper that all makes logical sense in a fictionalized story you would you know parents trying to protect their children is a story that we've heard since the beginning of time but it it also then explained why she reacted to frankie on that beach why it happened in the same way that it happened and harry ambrose throughout the bill pullman character was committed to helping Cora Tonetti. He wasn't unwilling to believe that she, that there was nothing out there, but he continually searched to try and prove her innocence, not because he was in love with her. They didn't tell that story. I think he saw her more as a daughter, and if you consider the fact that she really had no parents, she had a batshit crazy mother and a batshit crazy father that was cheating on her mother, these religious fanatics that were just well over the top and stressed beyond belief because of the younger daughter and all of the other things that had gone on, Harry Ambrose was really the father that Cora never had. And in that final scene, when they say goodbye to each other there for the last time, at least that we see them, and she just kind of lays her head onto his chest, kind of like a daughter would in a, in a lot of respects. And he sort of accepts it. And then he, you see his head at first, it's sort of recalcitrant, and he's a little bit afraid to give in. And then finally he does give in the way a father would when a daughter needs comforting or just needs to release that emotion. And that's what you get from both of them. Does Harry Ambrose's marriage come back together at the end? No. Everything does not end up hunky-dory. Cora doesn't walk out the door immediately. Cora goes to a psychiatric facility and gets out in a couple of years. But she'll have a life with Mason. She'll be able to see her child again and watch most of his you know, growth period and, and all of those things. So it ends up in a in as happy an ending as it could without being completely illogical. So with any eight episodes, you got some fantastic performances. There's no question Jessica Beale's gonna get nominated for an Emmy. And she's gonna be a strong contender potentially to win. It depends on what else is in the category. There's no handmaid's tale. So the center will have an opportunity in the limited series category. There will be some strong competition there as there always is. But She'll have a shot for sure. I think I think Pullman maybe gets a nomination as well. I think Christopher Abbott probably will not, but I think the Mason Tonetti character was much better than we anticipated it was going to be when we first met him. 
this guy was not a dirtbag. He was not a scumbag. He was not a bad guy. He did not cheat on her. He did not beat her. He did not hurt her. He was just a troubled dude after the fact, but he never gave up on his wife. So there was actually heroic quality to him. And with all the mistakes that Cora made in her life, whether it was the drugs or just being around the wrong crowd, which a lot of that I think was rebellion against her upbringing, Cora was more of a hero, a tragic figure to be sure, but one with redemption. And I feel like there was redemption for Harry Ambrose and what happened at the end as well. And you look at Frankie Belmont and just the way he reacted after the Phoebe thing. Frankie Belmont was not a bad dude. When you first met him and how he and Phoebe were talking and and everything that surrounded it, Frankie Belmont was never really a villain. Should he have had sex with with that girl on his on their first night? I mean, you know, those things happen in this society. If you're going to call a spade a spade, you know, you're not throwing stones at glass houses at this point in that situation. But Frankie didn't rape her, he didn't attack her, he didn't hurt her or anything like that until he accidentally killed her. But again, that's the key here is accident. The nefarious nature of what went on was in the cover-up. This was a Watergate story more than it was an initial corruption story. This was Anthony Weiner or Rod Blagojevich. This was not something pure evil. The characters with no redemption were... Cora's parents and even when you saw the mother come and see her in prison the things that she said the way that she acted those were bad people they might have thought they were living the right life but they weren't but the sinner's redemption for all of the main players was very well laid out and when you get to the end of the finale and the credits begin to roll you realize you just saw a story from start to finish that actually tied everything up the way that it needed to. There's nothing else really that we need to see from the center, and we won't. Unlike, you know, Big Little Lies, they can do a second season of Big Little Lies if they want. There's nothing left to tell here with the center. The center was a limited series with some big names in it. I would try to find a new vehicle for Jessica Biel if I was somebody in TV after watching that. She's still got her Bojack role, of course, as well, with the Bealist and everything else. But she was so great in this performance, as was Bill Pullman, that you wish that there was more that could be done, but you know that there wasn't. So then you can just look back on this project and say, you know what, that was a success. It was the top scripted cable series of the year. Nielsen delayed viewing data back in August of 2017. Came out. Number one new cable series of the year. So that's really all you need to know. If you didn't watch The Center, I'm going to go ahead and tell you you need to watch The Center. Awfully good. Eight episodes, eight hours. There's some, you know, some tough stuff to wade through at times. Few moments where it's slow here and there, but I think that it's necessary to set the mood. Excellent, excellent job. A, a good pickup by USA in the tradition of HBO going with Big Little Lies and Hulu's Handmaid's Tale and things like that. This is one that really will not come back. There's not really more story to tell here, like I said, but the story that is told has a good beginning, a good middle, and a good end. Great performances for numerous people on this show well worth your time to watch binge this thing it's on demand wherever your cable or direct or whatever it is that you might have you can watch this thing so go ahead and watch the center i'm going to diverge here and this is interesting because today uh politico put out a 4500 piece a 4500 word piece rather on clay 
And I was quoted in it five or six times. And the author, Ben Strauss, was in the studio on Monday when we were doing the show. And he interviewed me for about an hour. And then he pulled about four or five quotes of what I said out to make his point. His point that he already had before he walked in the door. As soon as I heard Politico was doing the article, I knew exactly what it was going to be. Clay, I think, hoped that it would be a little bit more balanced. And I don't think that this was nearly as much of a hit job as the Daily Beast piece. But it still was definitely a hit piece. And it took me out of context and felt the need. Uh, I'm just going to explain to you exactly how this went down. Because this is the first time I've really had this kind of experience. I've done a few other interviews over the last year uh, on a smaller scale with folks. And they've asked about the show and they've asked about Clay. And I've been very honest about it because you know that's why I have the jobs. Because I'm willing to do that. There's no hive mind here. What's very, very funny to me about OutKick in general is that I will get tweets from people that say, I'm nothing but a yes man that agrees with everything Clay Travis says. And then this morning I get something uh, that says, big shock, you disagree with Clay Travis, and like angry that I disagreed with Clay. The reason I work at OutKick, the reason why I accepted this job in the first place is because I knew I could disagree with him. I will find myself agreeing with him some. I'll find myself disagreeing with him some. And I'll also find myself feeling okay to express either of those two emotions i'm a 38 year old dude pretty smart college educated good job honest and i have opinions and i'm going to express them i don't have to kowtow to anybody so when politico sits down with me and they ask me for my opinions and they ask me about the show and our mission and things like that and they asked me the same question 25 different times while I'm fielding wall-to-wall phone calls and trying to run a show on Monday, because that's the other thing that won't be mentioned and was not mentioned in the article, is that during this probably about an hour or so off and on where I was talking to this guy, he was sitting right next to me while I was doing my job. It was not after the show. It was me. I would take a phone call, put somebody on hold, for example, listen to make sure Clay didn't need me on air, and then try to answer a question. But it was the same question being asked over and over again, and generally it was about authenticity. Clay's made this very concerted effort, right, to to go this direction, to appeal to this audience for monetary gain and to become famous. That was generally what he was trying to get me to say. And I never did. I found different ways to not give him the quote that he wanted. And look, I thought he was a pretty affable guy. But at one point, I said that Clay did find a space because he didn't see any balance coming from the sports media, which I've long said is more liberal than the news media and whatever, you know. But I laid out a list of folks in sports media that work at ESPN that I didn't feel really reflected my political values, that you don't hear the conservative side. It's always the same POV coming from a number of different faces and a number of different voices and a number of different authors, pundits, whatever, on ESPN. And I listed several of them. Included in that were Mina Kimes and Jamel Hill. And what Ben Strauss felt the need to do in this article was use that quote and then in parentheticals write, both women of color. Mina Kimes is part Korean. Jamel Hill, of course, is black. I also listed Sarah Spain and a number of other folks that I disagree with. 
that don't happen to be women of color or women at all. But that didn't make the agenda. So I didn't give this guy the answer that he looked for, yet he still found a way to brand me racist. And then he finishes that paragraph by saying, an ESPN staffer that I took this critique to, meaning my critique, said, what, like we don't have a ton, like ESPN doesn't have a ton of people on TV that are white? Let me tell you something. Race was never mentioned once in this interview. I, it never left my lips. It never left Ben Strauss's lips. It was not part of the discussion at all. This was not about classifications in that respect. It was only about diversification of thought, period. Yet, let's brand me a racist simply because I mentioned a few people that happen to be minorities in a list of a bunch of folks that happen not to be. The full list was not shown, just the two. So this is really the first experience I've had with a media walking in with a story that's already written in their head where nothing's going to change it, so they're just looking for whatever quotes they can pull to make that happen. It angers me simply because anybody that knows me at all knows I'm about as far from racist as one person can get. From my background to who I've grown up with, to my friends, to the people that I've worked with, to my Christian values, all of those things. And this isn't me just raging on Politico. It's just me setting the record straight because it's hard to get context from an hour-long talk in five quotes. And that's one of the ones that was chosen, and it wasn't even a quote. So there you go. There's a lot in that Politico piece that is inaccurate. There are a lot of questions that were very, very pointed and framed to elicit a response, not just to me, but from other people that were interviewed as well. It was just another hit job. You're not going to get a fair shake from the mass media if you happen not to be on the correct side on every single issue. Clay and I disagree politically on a number of different things. Fiscally, he's conservative. Of course, so am I. Socially, I'm also pretty conservative. He's generally not. But we can talk and have a good discussion. My mom and my dad are not on the same political side. They've been happily married for a long, long time. Long time. Pretty sure my mom and dad have never even voted on the same side, ever. They're not defined by their politics. Guess what? Neither am I. I had told this story to Clay. I go on, you know, Bumble and things like that because I'm still looking for the non-flake that's going to stick around and be who she says she's going to be and challenge me and strengthen me and, you know, walk with me in my faith and be the add-on to my life and let me be the add-on to hers. But when I go to your profile... And anywhere in your profile it says if you voted Trump or if you voted Clinton, swipe left. I'm going to swipe left no matter what side you're on. Because that means that you are so defined by your politics and what you believe that you would write off somebody that could potentially be wonderful in every other facet. If you are that determinate, If everything about you comes down to what you believe and who you happen to cast a vote for in a presidential election, I don't want to be around you. I've said many times I didn't vote for Trump. I actually took the R off my name as soon as he became the nominee. As soon as Rubio and Cruz were out, I was done. But if you say swipe left if you voted for Trump, I'm probably swiping left simply because you felt the need to say that. 
Similarly, if you said swipe left if you voted for Obama, I'm going to swipe left as well. Because I'm not looking for a wife that happens to believe politically everything that I do. And the same thing with Politico and the same thing with all of these articles. It was written by a liberal who wanted to portray someone he disagreed with in a negative light. And so that's what happened. That's what happened with the Daily Beast article. That's what happens on Daily Coast and Huffington Post every day. It's also what happens on Breitbart every single day. Unfair critiques lodged by somebody that is far to the extreme on one side or the other that is unwilling to even potentially listen to the argument being made that comes in with an agenda that needs to be serviced as opposed to actually serving the public good. And that is a gigantic problem in media. It's why I've tuned out of all cable news. There was a time that I watched a lot of Fox News. I will admit that. This was before Tucker Carlson was there and before Sean Hannity went out the deep end. My favorite time was when Combs was still actually a part of that show. Never really cared for Greta Van Susteren. Brett Baer, I thought, did a really good show, and I really enjoyed that after Brett Hume left. And there was nothing wrong with Brett's show either, but I think Brett is a, is a really down-the-road solid journalist. And you look at guys like Carl Cameron and Ed Helms and some of the White House correspondents, even guys like Major Garrett that worked at Fox that was a liberal that ended up going to CBS. Like, there was a time where Fox was different than what Fox has become, but Fox is now unwatchable for me. MSNBC has always been unwatchable for me. CNN, I respect Anderson Cooper. At times, I will watch his show. I have tuned into Don Lemon here and there, but his stuff is a little bit more sensationalized than I generally like. But I'm not watching Brooke Baldwin and a lot of these other kinds of shows. I just don't, there's no value in it. If I want to look at news, I will try my best to find an objective source to read about that news do my research on my own, hopefully not from some site that's slanted in one direction or another, and then take that to frame my own opinion. You read and you do your homework. That's how you actually succeed. That's how you learn things, and that's how you actually have integrity behind what you believe. And one of the things I said off the top at Outkick the Culture, on the first episode of this podcast, I kind of disparaged The Handmaid's Tale by the idea that the critics all across the country and all of the folks in Hollywood that love this show continually tried to point to how it's so prescient to our political times. And I thought that that was bullcrap. And I still think that that's bullcrap. These things are not five years away from happening or a hundred years away from happening. Nowhere close. This is ginned up nonsense. I find myself now, a lot of times when I write, going to a place of, I will use my faith at times Use is kind of a wrong way to put that. I will include my faith because it informs upon who I am. And I think that that then makes my reviews more personal to how I believe and what I believe and and how that frames my opinion of a show. I think including that actually makes me less biased because then you can look at that and say, okay, well, I'm not a Christian, so maybe I'm not going to feel this way. And that's fine. And not just my faith, but you know, I'm, I'm an emotionally present person. I'm somebody that wears his heart on his sleeve and it's caused it to be broken numerous times in 2017. 2017 has been a tough year on that front for me, but I feel like that I'm always open about that kind of stuff. And I'm going to use that when I have to. And that's why as we move and talk about this is us, I feel like I didn't write about this is us last year at all, but I'm going to write about it going forward every week. 
I feel like, and I could be dead wrong about this, and you know, you guys are going to be the ultimate arbiters of whether or not this is accurate. I feel like these are probably going to be some of the best reviews I've ever read, I've ever composed. Not because I'm some fantastic writer or that I've gotten that much better, but because the way this show is done, the personal touch to this show, the emotions, they all lend themselves to what I do. I don't necessarily break down the direction and the cinematography and, and things like that in the ways that some other critics do. I look at a story and I try to break it down to its most basic facets and use that to inform upon larger aspects of life. Did that with Better Call Saul. And I've done that with some other shows, but This Is Us is a show in which you can't avoid doing it. And what I wrote this week about the season two premiere, which dates back all the way, really, if you want to go back to the beginning of This Is Us and look at it from start to finish, the Pearsons, all of them, are imperfect people that struggle with feelings of inadequacy. If I had to boil This Is Us down to one concept that is repeated over and over again, that's what it is. Think about it. In terms of Randall's perfectionism, which we well know with his mental breakdowns in the past and what happened last season, of course, and what led to him quitting the job and just all of the inadequacy issues he's dealt with. Kate and her weight, very clear. I don't even need to go too much into that. That's all they wanted to do with Chrissy Metz last year was have her be very shaky because of the fact that she happens to be obese. And then you've got Kevin. Kevin, who left the Manny, because he wanted to be taken seriously as an actor. And then he struggles with the idea that, can I even hack this in this play? And he finds out at first he can't. And then all of a sudden he discovers something in himself that allows the possibility that he could. And you even look at the characters of the past with Jack and Rebecca. Was Rebecca a good enough singer? Jack trying to provide for his family, trying to find that money, not really wanting to go to his father and ask for it, not even admitting why he was there when he did so. All of the things that the characters do in This Is Us come from these feelings of inadequacy and this desire for perfectionism and meaning. And that's what we're still seeing as season two starts. And I think one point that happened on Tuesday night's episode gave me a lot of hope for where this show's going. I worried because I thought the finale, honestly, the perfect finale for This Is Us last year would have been the episode prior to the finale. Yes, the penultimate is when you get the highest drama, but this show was always in drama. They call it a dramedy, but I think that's really a reach. This show's a drama as far as I'm concerned. But the aftermath of William's death leading to the memorial service should have been the close of the season. We could have saved the Jack-Rebecca breakup and the incident that happened when she was on tour with Sam and, and all of those things. We could have saved that for another time. I was worried at the end of the season we were about to get Empire. And I look, we might. Look, Empire's first season was great, and since that point it's not been anywhere close. This Is Us didn't end particularly well. The season was uneven, but the show was uneven. I think that points to the imperfection and points to the reality and gives it the authenticity that you actually want from a show like this, that it isn't perfect, that Kate's story is really obnoxious, that Duke was almost untenable, that Toby at times is just hideous as a character. That it's one note in uh, many respects. But that's just what This Is Us is going to be. You're going to like some stuff. You're going to dislike some stuff. You're going to wish that more time was spent on Randall because that's been the most entertaining story by far. And you're hopefully going to see 
Kate Pearson do more than cry about her weight. And this is the moment in the premiere that gave me a lot of hope for the future for Dan Fogelman's series. It is that when Kate went back to the audition after leaving, demanding to do Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You, and got cut off two lines in, and then turned around and, and yelled about how she doesn't look like the size twos that are in that room, but she can knock this thing completely out of the park, and you're not going to dismiss her because she's fat. I, I was hoping they were going to do this, and they did it. The casting person asked Audrey, another girl, to do the same song, and she belted it out, and she was about 20 times better than Kate, and she was beautiful. And Kate kind of ducked her head. And then the casting person told Kate, point blank, that's our backup singer because she's not good enough. It's not because you're fat. It's not because of anything else. It's because you're not good enough, honey. And then Kate walked out and said, I'm okay with that because I know I can do this. And I hope that that's where we're headed because Chrissy Metz is really talented, but I can't deal with the fat camp stuff for another season because we've been there and done that. It's always going to be a part of her. And it has to be a part of that character. That much I understand. But there's got to be more to a woman than her weight. There's got to be more to a man than his weight. So the fact that this happened not because of weight, but because of talent or because of skill or because of just longevity in the practice gives me hope that they're going to do more with Kate's character this season and make those storylines actually entertaining. So that was a real positive. Kevin and Sophie, who knows how that's going to end. This is this is us. So it probably doesn't end well. Not because Kevin's going to cheat. Hopefully they're not going to do that. He's done that already once. But just because he's doing a Ron Howard movie and he's halfway across the world and you know they're not seeing each other right now because she can't get out there and he's spending his birthday alone and all of that. As long as they slow this down just a bit, I think season two is going to be fine. I enjoyed the premiere. Not the best episode of the series. So glad we got to hear Ron Cephas Jones's narration over top. I kind of wish he would narrate every episode from here on out. And like I said at the end of my review, I would pay him to narrate my life because I love that dude's voice. And I hated that we had to kill him off. But I realized that that needed to happen. That Memphis episode was just fantastic TV. If they had ended the season on that, you know, I, I... think you could have also done that and then started the season with the uh, memorial service, but they chose and needed to fill 18 episodes, and that's the way that they went about doing it. We're going to find out before the end of the year, Dan Fogelman did an interview where he said to IndieWire that before the end of the season, we're going to learn all the secrets about Jack's death, how he died, when um, the results of those immediate or the immediate consequences, rather, of what happened. Looks like he died in a fire at the home, at his home, based on how the episode ends. But a lot of times with This Is Us, we'll see something and think it's true, and it's only half true. Like the blind date example from season one, where it looked like they were going on a blind date with each other, and they were scheduled to go on one, but it wasn't with each other. They were two separate stories that were told as if they were one, and then it was a reveal at the end. And that's what This Is Us does. It pulls out a twist whenever it can at the end of an episode to kind of throw the audience a little bit or make them think, oh, how beautiful. And then they give you music interlude for two or three minutes, and then they get out of Dodge. I don't think that this show needs to trick you as much as it has, but I have enjoyed a lot of manipulation that it has done emotionally and otherwise. 
The acting on the show, very good, obviously. Sterling K. Brown that won an Emmy. Sterling K. Brown is just one of the best TV actors in a long time. Of course, he's now going to be in motion pictures as well, and his career is going to skyrocket and should skyrocket because he's just an amazing performer. The Randall character is the best character on the show. He and William together was magic. He and Beth together is magic. He and those kids together is magic. He and Kate or he and Kevin or he and Rebecca. Whatever it is Randall's doing, generally, that's when This Is Us is firing. But if they make Kate a little bit better, make Toby a little bit less obnoxious, I think the show could somehow actually eclipse its first season. If we can get off this weight thing, I think what they've done with Kevin and the evolution that they allowed him to undergo in season one worked pretty well and made him a much more well-rounded character by the end. He's still got his problems, but he seems to be a better person in the wake of everything that went down with the two girls and going to the uh, memorial service, running into the widow or the new widow and just all of the things that kind of brought out his emotions the kind of rekindling of something that never really existed with his brother. There's there's a lot to like about the Kevin character. The Kate character is where the show has failed. And it has nothing to do with Chrissy Metz. It has nothing to do with Kate, nothing to do with Toby. Those guys or those people that are performing are excellent. You just want to write stuff that's better for them. And I hope that that's what we're going to get this year. But for a season premiere, for the audience that watches This Is Us, the ones that care deeply about that show... I think the premiere is probably going to be well-received. I've seen some people that responded to my reviews, and a lot of folks really enjoyed that review. You can find it at outkick.com. Over the last two weeks, I've written four pieces a week, Monday through Thursday. That may be kind of the tenor going forward with Tuesday being the wrestling day. Wednesday will be a This Is Us review every week. Monday will be my Deuce review, if not on Sunday night, which this week hopefully it will be on Sunday night because I'll just go ahead and write it here today. And then just schedule it so you can read it as soon as the episode is over on Sunday. Thursday, usually going to be a movie review. Next week, it's going to be a big-time movie review that I can't even tell you about because I have to sign a non-disclosure agreement before I go to see this thing on Monday. And I can't admit what it is. Can't even say on social media that I've seen it, as a matter of fact. So that'll be a review that you can look forward to next week. Mr. Robot comes back on October the 10th. I will be writing about that weekly as I did last season. So that's something to look forward to as well in print from me. And there's going to be some other things that we're going to add to the mix. My writing is expanding, certainly. Being able to write the wrestling content over there gives me a little bit more freedom. But Clay, one thing again that he's always given me is the freedom to write what I want to write. So I'm able to do that. I'm able to cover things. I'm able to write about the good place last week. And again, if you missed Thursday's episode or last night's episode, man, what great TV I saw Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter, compare it to Groundhog Day, and I think that's fair, and I think that should be a good enough endorsement right there if you haven't watched The Good Place to watch The Good Place because it's awesome. also saw Raphael Bob Waxberg, creator of BoJack Horseman, tweet about how American Vandal blew him away, how he had no idea it was going to be as good as it actually was and called it a stupendous season of television. believe I said damn near the same stuff when I reviewed it in great detail last week. I am telling you right now, American Vandal, one of the best television experiences I've had all year. And honestly, it's a show that even though I know everything about it, I'm going to go back and watch it again. I'm going through some other stuff right now, doing some catch-up work on a few other series. 
because you just can't watch all this stuff as it's happening. But I'm going to go back and spend some time with American Vandal again because I enjoyed it so much. And we're going to talk This Is Us on a pretty weekly basis here on this show as well because I think there's a large enough audience of people that watch that with their families that are going to enjoy that conversation. So we're going to continue to do that. And again, I really do believe that the This Is Us reviews that I'm going to be writing for OutKick are going to be somewhat unlike anything else that you're going to read about that show or maybe somewhat different than anything you've read from me. And I feel like if there was one show that really allows me to be me the most in print, it's This Is Us. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. Should have done it last year, but certainly now with that show being the hit that it is, makes complete sense to do it. Quickly, let's talk about The Deuce real quick. We're two more episodes into The Deuce. We know more about Vinny and Frankie Martino and their relationship to the Gambino crime family. Vinny has opened his new bar on 45th. We've got all of these things happening. Candy trying to get off the streets, really interested in the motion picture industry, being behind the camera. But we're seeing that glass ceiling as she talks to David Krumholtz's character, and he says, you're pretty enough to be in front of the camera, but she doesn't want to be a porn star. But that's kind of how she's seen, and it's how she's viewed. And she even tells her mom, look, I'm looking into all of these different things. And her mom, of course, not thrilled with what she does for a living, kind of looks at it and maybe hopes that it could possibly be true after taking a cheap shot about her profession in front of her son when they're at that restaurant. We're seeing that Larry Brown, despite the fact that he is the one that is supposed to be this big negative pimp, had a chance to beat Darlene after she fell asleep with the John watching Mildred Pierce, but didn't do it. Actually took her to the bar. Larry Brown could be an asshole, probably is, he's a pimp, but he's not, if he is an asshole, he doesn't hide it, and he seems to be a lot more forgiving than somebody like Cece, who when he was asked a question by Ashley as to whether or not she could take the night off because of the downpour, he sliced her up. The Deuce, and I said this when we initially talked about the show a few weeks ago, the Deuce is going to be a hellscape. These are all tragic figures. I don't know that we're going to have a success story out of the bunch. I feel like maybe one person could escape this life. But if you remember The Wire, how many people on The Wire actually ended up in a better place than they started? Think about McNulty and Bunk and where their jobs were when that series began and where those jobs were when that series ended. Think about, of course, Stringer Bell and Avon Barksdale and Bodie and Marlowe and all of those folks and how their lives changed. They made money for a short time and almost all of them ended up in a pine box or in jail. All of the people that worked in the police department, Lester Fremont and the crew, they all ended up either with lesser jobs or in the same exact place that they were in. I feel like the same thing's going to happen with the Deuce. This week's episode was written by David Simon and Richard Price. David Simon, of course, famous for The Wire, and this episode felt like The Wire. You know, the credits are basically The Wire. It's not way down in a hole, but it's another very prescient kind of song that fits the mode, still has that same kind of time frame feel to it. Everything about those credits remind me of The Wire except that you're getting a little bit more vivid imagery, which sort of fits with the motif of the porn and pleasure industry. But The Deuce has been really good. The last two episodes, this is the first one, this one this past Sunday, written by Price and, and Simon, this is the first one that didn't feel really introductory. 
it's like, okay, you know the characters now. Let's actually show you what they're doing. Let's show you what Rudy Pippolo is up to. Let's show you this bar when it opens. Let's put all of our characters kind of in one place. I wondered why they were showing us so much of Pippolo and what the two Francos were up to. And now it makes a lot more sense because everybody is coalescing on this one place. Also got Abby as a waitress there. She and Vinny have not slept together yet. It's coming. It's sort of, it's probably going to be this kind of like a flirtatious relationship for a while and eventually it's going to grow into more. But there's definitely chemistry there on camera, so it works pretty effectively. The Deuce is still really in its infancy. It's already been renewed, but if you haven't seen it, it's only three episodes in. It's not the easiest watch. It's definitely a red show. If you go back to my second episode, you'll, I can explain to you where red and blue shows came from. But it's an excellent, excellent drama and something that should absolutely be on everybody's DVR on Sunday nights, and I hope that it is on yours. Told you about Battle of the Sexes. I wrote about Battle of the Sexes on Thursday. It's still not out in wide release. It's opening in most markets this weekend or the bigger markets. Nashville, I know, gets it today. Battle of the Sexes, Steve Carell and Emma Stone playing Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King. The famous Battle of the Sexes on the tennis court that was on ABC that did unbelievable ratings. It came after Bobby Riggs hustled Margaret Court into a match and then destroyed her and then went on this anti-woman crusade, but it was all pretty much a facade. And Billie Jean King, who ends up beating Bobby Riggs, spoiler alert, and also right around the time that she left the U.S. Lawn and Tennis Association and helped found the WTA, and you know the person kind of behind the scenes helping to get Virginia Slims, the cigarette company, on board. I feel like Steve Carell was perfect for Bobby Riggs, looked like him, sounded like him, had the same boisterous attitude, everything about him screamed Bobby Riggs. On the other side, Emma Stone played Billie Jean King, and it still looked like Emma Stone every time I saw it. And that's that's hard to overcome. She didn't really favor Billie Jean King all that much, so she had a bigger hill to climb. And she was great. I like Emma Stone tremendously, but she never made me forget she was Emma Stone. There were times when Carell was definitely Bobby Riggs to me. So I think that he was the better of the two, but they were both good. But here's the bigger problem with Battle of the Sexes, which I gave a C plus. And look, it was fine. It was pretty good. A little too long. But the biggest issue was it was marketed to be one story, but generally it was another. And it's okay that it was that other story, but I kind of wish they'd been more upfront about that. Because I think there are going to be people that go to see this expecting one thing and then getting that for a third of the movie, but getting something else for two-thirds. And you already know what that two-thirds is. And I actually expected we were going to get a lot of this, but I didn't know we were going to get quite this much. This was much less about Bobby Riggs versus Billie Jean King as it was a biopic about Billie Jean King's sexual awakening. Well, really not just sexual awakening, but her social awakening, I would say. First, fighting for women's rights, which of course she did long before the Bobby Riggs match. But mainly her deciding that she favored women, even though she was married running into this hairdresser, Marilyn, and ending up in bed with her and ending up that ending the marriage and eventually Billie Jean King having a life partner. So she became a lesbian, and the story spent much of the first half on that relationship with this hairdresser that turned out to lead to very little. And then, you know, it would throw in Bobby Riggs here and there, 
show that he was a gambling degenerate, which is well known. Then in the second half of the film, we saw a little bit more rigs, and then we got to the end where we finally got to the tennis match. And it was more about Billie Jean King than it was about King versus Riggs. And I think if it had been called Billie Jean King, it probably would be better received because people would understand going in what they were going to get. I think a lot of folks are going to come in expecting a fun film about the Battle of the Sexes, and they're going to walk out getting a somewhat fun film about the Battle of the Sexes, but more a commentary on how difficult it was for Billie Jean King to discover she was a lesbian and how she was actually going to make that public or whether or not it was the time to do that. Alan Cumming plays you know, one of sort of the fashion designers on tour, and he hugs her and says, this isn't the time, but it's coming, and things of that nature. So there's a lot of that to be found in the film. I don't think that is really revealed in the trailers, and I think that's a mistake because there are going to be people that are pissed that don't want to see that story, that are going to pay to see one story, and they're going to get another one. I think those people are naive to think that it wasn't going to be the story, but it was more than I expected it to be. The second problem with Battle of the Sexes is that not once do they even hint at the fact that Billie Jean King's win over Bobby Riggs wasn't 100% legitimate. There have been, I don't know how many theories, how many stories, how many articles, how many reports written since that match about how Bobby Riggs and his well-known gambling problem had put him into big-time debt with the mafia and that the best way that he could think of to be able to keep his life was to throw that match and make some people rich because, of course, he was favored in the match. I'm not suggesting that's exactly what happened. I'm suggesting that it has been posited and there's been some evidence behind it. The fact that the film didn't even hint at it, even at the end when it puts up the text to show what's happened to Bobby Riggs since, what's happened to Billie Jean King since, and you know the social critique, the final social critique in text before they go to the end, not once did they even put in the text that it's been theorized that this match was, no pun intended, rigged. It doesn't match the agenda. This thing is presented like Billie Jean King whipped Bobby Riggs' ass, Bobby Riggs was embarrassed, was sad when he was back in his own locker room and that Billie Jean King won this match. That may have been what happened, but there has been a lot of doubt cast upon that being the case. And for this film not to do it did not surprise me, but it disappointed me because I think that you should present both sides. You're not presenting evidence necessarily, but you showed Bobby Riggs as a gambler throughout the film, but never tied it to anything. Just used it to show that it cost him his marriage, at least for a short time. If they had just put in text at the end, there is some speculation that this match was not legitimate and that Bobby Riggs needed to get out of a gambling hole and did so by throwing the match. Also, the idea that him being this blustery figure was a construct, and it was. He wasn't anti-feminine. He wasn't anti-woman. He was just a hustler. He was a shameless self-promoter. He was a character. He was a pro wrestler, basically. So all of these things, there's also stories that he did this because he wanted Billie Jean King to become this famous person, and he wanted Billie Jean King and women to actually be noticed in this way. None of that is presented in this movie at all. This is about woman defeating man in the end, and it's also about lesbianism. And look, those two things are fine, but they were not advertised, particularly the, the uh, latter, was not advertised effectively. 
was not advertised, I think, accurately. And as a result, it hurt my review, not because I was upset those stories were told, but because I was upset that no one told me about it ahead of time. I feel like that's a, it's not really bait and switch, but it's a little bit shady. It's Billie Jean King. I expected us to see the lesbian stuff. I expected us to see some of that. I did not expect it to take up that much of the film in 125 minutes of this film, a good 70 or about her sexual awakening, at least 70, maybe more. So I gave it a C plus. It's fine. It's going to be forgettable. You'll walk out five minutes later. You won't think about it. I said that I didn't think about it five minutes after I left. That's untrue because I'm talking about it on this podcast, but generally speaking, I'll never watch it again. It's a one watch film. It's the people behind Little Miss Sunshine, but it's just not, there's nothing stand out about it. The tennis scenes are, are pretty well done. You enjoy spending time with these people, but it's just not a memorable, lasting portrait of anything. I'm going to hold the sitcom discussions, the new ABC stuff. I'll wait until Blackish and Fresh come back up on Tuesday. We can talk about Blackish and Fresh and Goldberg's Modern Family and um, Speechless next week. All those shows I enjoy. Modern Family, I'm kind of pretty much done with, but the rest of those I greatly enjoy still. So we'll talk about those in a little bit of detail next week. Also, Superstore on NBC, which I haven't really been able to talk much about. We did talk a lot about The Good Place last week. Again, as I've told you, please watch The Good Place. You're definitely going to enjoy that show. It makes you think a little bit more than some of Schur's other shows, but that's a good thing, I think. Brooklyn Nine-Nine came back this week. It was also fantastic. Another one of my favorite shows. We'll discuss that as part of the comedy discussion. We'll do a lot of comedy next week. I think we'll have some fun there. We've been a little bit heavier on this show, talking stuff like This Is Us and The Deuce and... uh. All of those kinds of things. The center, certainly not really a lighthearted show there. So there will be a lot to get to for sure when we're back together next week. I will talk about young Sheldon here before we go. Young Sheldon's got an issue, and it's one that I don't think that can be solved. And Dan Feinberg is a Hollywood reporter. I saw him put this out there, and as soon as I saw it, it sort of echoed my own feelings. Young Sheldon's problem is that the Sheldon Cooper that we meet at the beginning of the Big Bang Theory, from the pilot on, and even back from the pilot when we see the flashback episode, which was the penultimate episode of season three of that show, we know that Sheldon Cooper is an unbearable jerk at the beginning of the Big Bang Theory as an adult. That he's always been that way when his mom, Lori Metcalf, shows up. She talks about how nothing's really ever changed about Sheldon Cooper. He has changed. He has evolved over the years on the Big Bang Theory, primarily because of relationships with people like Penny and Amy Farrah Fowler and Bernadette. He has grown to appreciate his friends in a different way as well, but it's the relationships with women that have really made him emotionally resonant and different and variant from what he used to be. The problem for young Sheldon is we know that young, that old Sheldon even, that young adult Sheldon that we meet at the beginning of the Big Bang Theory is a complete jerk, and he's always been the same. So the redemption and the evolution of young Sheldon cannot exist unless they're just going to lie to us based on what we already know or reveal that history doesn't mean anything. We've seen the Big Bang Theory, or many of us have, so we know that young Sheldon's going to be a complete prick all the way through this show and is never going to grow. 
His mom said as much on the Big Bang Theory as an adult. We saw who he was as, as an adult, so we knew know who he's going to be as a child. So even if you like the child that you saw in the pilot, expect that that's going to be the same exact person, whether this show runs for two years or ten years. It's not going to change. We watched him change as an adult. So everything that we're seeing we already know isn't going to get any better. That is a problem. I don't know how you pivot from that. I'm not sure how you work around that. You're in a very deep, dark hole in a corner with a large, weighty person standing in front of you that you can't push out of the way. Unless you simply say, yeah, you know, he didn't change. We're going to make him change on this show because we need to rate with this show. That's fine, but once you do that, just know that everybody is going to see it for what it is except for the people that are just watching to be entertained, which is, unfortunately, a large part of the audience. Not that it's bad they just want to be entertained, that it's bad that they wouldn't expect better from the continuity of one property and its spinoff. It's already gotten a full-season pickup. I mentioned off the top of this show that other than it's the biggest like new series premiere since Empire in terms of ratings on networks, it's huge numbers. And I'm not terribly surprised, honestly. Big Bang is still doing great ratings. And I looked it up. It is it's eleventh season that is starting. You know, I just don't know what the length is for for young children. I don't know how long it can go being this same show. So we'll see how they how Chuck Lorre and how these guys try to write around this fact that we know Sheldon's never going to change and he's going to be an insufferable brat constantly, no matter what, and going to show very little signs of any redemption whatsoever. That is a problem. That is a unique set of circumstances for a writing team to know that this guy should not ever change at all throughout the course of our show. Any kind of prequel, you know how it ends. You know how Gotham is going to end, at least to some extent. You know how Better Call Saul is going to end, at least to some extent. With young Sheldon, I don't know when it will stop, but we just know already what this character is going to be on the last episode because it's going to be exactly the same as a character that's on the first episode. Maybe that's good for some of you. I would indicate to you that it's probably going to get very annoying and that you're going to have to start relying on the other characters outside of Sheldon to either make or break this show for you. It's way too early to really tell too much, but there's enough out there right now to simply say, I don't know how long this can go before it really starts to irritate people. And I hope it does not lead because of its success to a bunch of young blah, blah, blah spinoffs of other shows, because that's the last thing that we need. One thing CBS does when one thing works is they do the crap out of it. Remember CSI or NCIS or any of those kind of shows, Criminal Minds, they even tried to put a spinoff out for. You don't always have to spin everything off. I understood doing a good fight from The Good Wife. I understand Star Trek Discovery. You know, I get some of this stuff. Young Sheldon's not something that needs to exist, but if it's if it's a success, more power to them. But let's not have you know young Kevin Heffernan or whatever or Doug Heffernan, I guess his name is. Sorry, Kevin James, King of Queens. Let's not get into that. We don't need seven hundred of these reboots. This one, and I saw some people comparing it to the Wonder Years. Look, the Wonder Years is a beautiful show. This is going to have a long road to hoe if it's going to try to become the Wonder Years. But the idea that Sheldon Cooper's character can't change without destroying the continuity of the entire universe that they've created over the last decade, 
that's intriguing to me. I want to see how they get around that. So we'll discuss it here and there on the show when it bears mention, just to see if they've done anything interesting or found a way around this considerable problem that they find themselves in right now. And that's it for this week. Saturday Night Live is back this week, so we will talk a lot of SNL next week. A lot of comedy, like I said. We're going to talk about SNL on a deeper level, about whether or not... It's always fun because you'll talk to people that will say this season of SNL is terrible, or man, this show's bad now. I've seen this written in the past. I think it's an interesting question. It's something to think about this week. Has it ever been good? Like, truly good on a level that would be deemed acceptable on a main wide widespread level everybody has their favorite cast usually all hits around when you're a certain age as opposed to whether or not that cast is that much talented than the others i have mine you have yours and then there have been down years and there have been a lot of down years i haven't really thought that overall snl has been good for a long time but i'm curious whether or not that is the opinion of most or whether or not if you really stop and think if you apply that critique to the past, if that's also true then. So we're going to talk about SNL. We'll talk about the premiere and how Ryan Gosling does and, and what they do with Trump and what they do with the NFL, if they do anything, how they treat some of this stuff. We'll discuss that in detail. We'll get into a whole lot of comedies, like I said. Some more premieres will have happened by then that we can discuss. Get into a couple of more shows next week that I think you need to be checking out. We're going to have Mindhunters coming out on netflix here in just a couple of weeks so that'll be something we'll be discussing once it actually does release and then of course stranger things a few weeks after that also next friday i'll be able to talk about that movie i can't talk about right now that i'm going to see on monday afternoon so a whole lot to look forward to next week on outkick the culture if you like what you're hearing please go to itunes and tell folks we're doing really good numbers but we could always be doing better so go to iTunes, look us up, give us a rate, give us a review. Hit me up on Twitter at jmartoutkick. Follow me there. I'd greatly appreciate it. Let me know your thoughts on everything I talk about, whether or not you think I'm allowed or not. At least you know, tell me what you think about these shows, where I'm right, where I'm wrong, stuff that you want me to cover that I have not been able to talk about because, again, I don't come in here with notes, so it's what's on my head. Sometimes I'll take about a minute break that you obviously won't hear where I'm just trying to collect and say, where do I want to go next? Because I, you know, I'll have a couple of things in my head. But even some of the stuff that we've talked about today wasn't necessarily where I wanted to talk about it or how I wanted to talk about it or even that I wanted to talk about it, but here we are. And I think that that's cool. I think that that does provide a little bit more of a genuine feel to what we're doing. But if there's some show that you want me to cover that I have not been covering, let me know. One, I've probably seen it, so I have thoughts. And two, if I get several people saying, hey, I really want you to talk about X or talk about Y, then I'm going to talk about X and Y because you guys care about it. And in the end of the day, I can talk about all the stuff that I love, but if nobody watches it or nobody cares about it, this show's going to be irrelevant anyway. So I've got to balance it. I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'm going to tell you what I am watching that I think you should be watching, especially if you're not. But I want you to tell me what you are watching and what you desperately want my thoughts on. And I appreciate the time that it takes to do that. At Jmart Outkick again on Twitter or on email, jmartclone at gmail. Com. So a lot of comedy discussion next week, some variety, some sketch comedy stuff next week also. I'm talking, thinking hard about potentially bringing on a guest next week that has worked in improv and stand-up for a while and getting his take on the SNL situation and just comedy as a whole in this society. I think you might enjoy that conversation. Also, I'm going to be reaching out over the next few days to the folks behind American Vandal because I want to get them on the show and I want you guys to hear from them 
and really go through the process of what it was to put this show together, which is becoming a phenomenon, 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is damn right and still wrong because it means 5% of people are idiots. Guess who's not idiots? Anybody listening to this show and, at least hopefully, me. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.